You're listening to episode 154 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? I am over the moon excited to share today's new episode with the incredible author, S.A. Chakraborty. Our conversation is full of inspiration and great writing tips that you cannot miss. But before we jump in, I want to share some exciting Patreon-related news. I've added early access to interviews for our super storytellers who signed up for our Patreon membership at the Silky Chickens with Balloons tier and higher. Super storytellers now have early access to interviews with authors like Naomi Novik of Spinning Silver and Julie Dow of Forest of a Thousand Lanterns. Their episodes will be released publicly on our podcast over the next several months, and as a patron, you get super early access right now. Next month, super storytellers over in our Patreon get early access to interviews with guests like Samantha Shannon, Tao Li, and more. So if you're not yet a super storyteller and would love early access to these interviews, head on over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea and sign up at the Silky Chickens with Balloons tier or higher and you'll receive these early access interviews on top of all the other cool benefits in that tier. Again, that's patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea. By the way, becoming an 88 cups of tea Patreon member is the best way to show support right now. If you'd love to show support in another way, I'd be so grateful if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and tap that subscribe button and give us a rating and a review. From what I hear, it helps our show become more visible to new listeners and every bit helps to get the word out about 88 Cups of Tea, so thank you so much. On that note, I'd love to highlight one of our listeners who took the time to write a very thoughtful review for us on Apple Podcasts. This storyteller's username is Bird Millman and they wrote, Yin says at the beginning of each episode that this podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated. And let me tell you, she succeeds. I finish each episode feeling eager to write and bursting with creative energy. The advice in each episode has helped me in honing my own craft so much. She has interviewed so many of my favorite authors and her bubbly, amazing personality improves the interviews tenfold. Listening to this podcast feels like listening to a chat between friends, but not only that, she's not afraid to go to emotional places and give her interviewees the space to be honest about their experiences, both good and bad. I love listening to this podcast and look forward to each new episode. Oh my gosh. Thank you so, so much, Bird Millman, for that incredible review. I am honestly blown away by your kind words, and I am so Freaking happy that you get motivation and creative energy from our show. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast and for being a part of our community. I am so happy to have you here with us. Now on to today's guest, we have Shannon Chakraborty, more commonly known as S.A. Chakraborty. Shannon is most recognized for her debut novel, The City of Brass, and her sequel, The Kingdom of Copper, which just released this week. In her episode, Shannon shares a story of how she fell in love with writing and how she became a full-time author. She gives us a snapshot of the vivid world she's crafted in her novels, The City of Brass and The Kingdom of Copper. We talk about her querying process and how to hone the craft of character building in fantasy worlds. And she also dives into her own research process, shares incredible tips on finding your writing style, and the importance of self-care as an author. Now let's jump right in because you are going to love all the incredible stories and advice she shares. Shannon, how are you? Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. Why don't we just jump into way back when you first fell in love with storytelling, like your first memory of when you were so enamored by stories overall? So I've always been a reader. I mean, since I was a little kid, I was that kid who went to the library and just read whatever I could get my hands on. Um, I always wanted to just know more about the world. I would be reading encyclopedias and all of those like eyewitness kids books about dinosaurs or about ancient Egypt. So I've always been a reader. 
storytelling almost came to me a little later, I guess, in terms of writing or, you know, what you would consider a story. I was a very imaginative kid. I actually was sort of a late bloomer because I didn't want to leave those years where you could run around with your friends and like pretend to be things. I was like, why would I want to go to like a mall and buy makeup? Like I could pretend to be an anamorph. <laughs> but I actually came to writing very late and sort of just as a thing to keep myself occupied while my professional life kind of fell apart. So reading and telling stories and, and being involved in that kind of thing was something I loved since childhood. Oh my gosh. Okay. So how encouraging were your parents? Because this is something I share on the show a lot is that for me growing up, of course, reading was always encouraged, but to even bring up any kind of artistry, they were like, you know what, that's a hobby. That's wonderful. But real job, you better buckle down. Like how were your parents with that? Oh, my parents were the exact same way. I mean, I was the first in my entire extended family to go to college. I come from a very blue collar uh, background. You know, my family was pretty poor growing up and they were always very supportive, but it was almost like a slightly different world. Like you went to college and, you know, college was this magical thing that like, you know, you got good grades and people who could had money went to college and then were guaranteed this sort of successful life. But it was very much like my parents didn't want me to struggle. Go to college, do whatever, you know, people do in college, which was very confusing as a first generation college student. But, you know, you have to get a job to support your life because, you know, this is just what people do and, and life is hard. So when I grew up, I mean, I just never really considered the arts. You know, I loved it. And my mom was always pushing me to read. My my mom was a reader. You know, it was great. I grew up very supportive in reading and doing these kind of things, but it was just this fear I had. I, I was like, no, I have to be able to support myself. I have to be able to support my family if something happens. You know, it was just when I thought career, I didn't really think, you know, passion wise, it was kind of what is, you know, get me a paycheck. So I didn't really have that. And that actually really kind of stayed in my mind through much of my 20s and probably contributed to me not really feeling like I could call myself a writer or thinking like I could do this. Um, you know, I went to college and it was that same whole thing. It was like, oh, you go to college and it's magic. You go there and you'll figure out, you know, how to get a stable job. So I studied what I loved, which was history and international relations. But I was very shy. I still am. And I was fortunate to go on a scholarship and otherwise sort of work my way through. But I, you know, never talked to my professors or did anything that would have been networking because I just didn't know. So it's interesting because I loved history and I was like, I want to be a professor. I don't really know anything about that. And in order to find out, I would have to interact with people. And that's too terrifying to do. <laughs> you know, I applied for graduate school. I was so, so not qualified. And it's, it's funny. This will come up later. But when I was soundly rejected from all of these PhD programs, because I was 22 and had only done a minor in history, <laughs> so they were like, you were working for the UNHCR. Why are you here? But, um, you know, years later, I would find out I was applying for PhD programs in Islamic history. And years later, I would meet my imam in Brooklyn, who was in that program and spoke like four languages, <laughs> all this like clerical background. And I was like, yeah, I was probably not ready to be in a program with you at 22. <laughs> You know, I, I, I graduated. I hadn't taken a single creative writing course in college. Like I did my AP courses so that I could go and use my, my kind of scholarship credits to not take anything extra. And I graduated in 2008 and then the economy collapsed. And, you know, I was working at a translation company. It was basically like a millennial mill. They would work us to death and everybody lasted like a month. I went there to do to help do Arabic sourcing for like cultural projects and got shafted into like Eastern European languages and medical devices. Um, what? So, yes. I did not last there long. Actually, the job that broke me, and I will never forget this, it was like translating a cat inhaler into Icelandic. What? And I did not get the right translator and I got like <laughs> reamed out over it. I was working so many hours. I had moved from home because I was thoroughly in love with my long distance college boyfriend. So I had moved to New York and just did this and the job didn't last and the economy collapsed and I'd had no idea what to do. So I just took the first job I could get, which was doing secretarial work where I lived in South Brooklyn at a medical office. It was good. I was, ha you know, I was just 
same growing up, you got a job, you pay the bills, you're fine. You know, my fiance at that time was going to medical school. Okay. I'll put a roof over our heads, but I was just very, you know, I found myself very crushed and dispirited. I was supposed to, you know, go to college and find this great job. And it was, you know, I liked the work. Any job is something to be proud of, but I felt like I had just sort of blown my professional life and my career. And now I was somewhere that I didn't really want to be. And it was a crazy job. (laughs) It was this multi-office, big obstetrics and gynecology practice in South Brooklyn. I probably shouldn't talk too much because people will be able to find it. (laughs) But I mean, talk about, you know, cross-cultural experience. Like I was one only Muslims in the office and people would put me in charge of anything that was like between the Catholics and the Orthodox because, you know, I would be neutral. (laughs) You know, I felt very lost and I usually don't talk about this, but I try to now because I feel like a lot of other writers and quite frankly, a lot of people my age feel like, wait, you know, things are not going where I want them for my career and I'm never going to be able to fix them. You know, as time ticked on and I knew I wouldn't have those references to go back to graduate school, I wasn't even sure what I wanted to go back to school for. I was terrified of of getting into further debt. I just was, like I said, I was raised with this mindset, you know, just make sure you survive financially. And I was very lost. And the one thing I kind of still had at the time was that I was still really interested in history and I was still interested in my religion. You know, I'm a, I'm a Muslim convert. I had converted in high school and sort of played into a lot of interest I had in the medieval Islamic world. And that was what I had wanted to study in graduate school. And even though I had sort of lost my way from that, I still had all the books. I loved reading. I loved immersing myself in that world. So I started this strange little project that I was never going to show anyone. And I wanted to create sort of a magical historical version of this world. And some of these places that I read that, you know, if I had read something about the libraries of Baghdad, I would put it in this world I was building and set a little short story there. You know, I did a lot with Jin folklore. So I started kind of building up this world, writing little short stories in it. It was the first creative writing I had ever done in my life outside like a couple Harry Potter fan fiction stories. I was a uh, real nerdy. <laughs> oh my God. I love that though. I, I'm noticing so many authors who've been on this podcast. That's actually where they first started feeling brave enough to test out creative writing. I have spoken to a lot of other writers and it is. I mean, I think it's definitely a launching pad. I think writing should be fun and it yes. should be enjoyable because it's hard enough. So it's easier to, I think, sometimes get a little bit of a start in something that has an established world and run with that. Like I said, I had no creative writing experience at all. So I was just kind of writing this for myself. And it was just nice to just kind of immerse myself in this world after working all day and just feeling lost to just kind of go back into this. But I was never going to show it to anyone until literally eventually my fiance was like, what what are you doing at your computer time? <laughs> and it just slowly started. I showed him. He was like, this is incredible. You know, he's a huge science fiction and fantasy nerd. I mean, we both are. Oh, so it's a huge compliment then coming from him. Yes. And he's very difficult to please. He is my number one beta reader and he can be harsh. <laughs> Were you like super nervous when you first let him read it? Oh, I was so nervous. God, this was like 10 years ago. And I can tell you, I can close my eyes right now and be back where I told him what it was about. (gasps) Wait, you were that nervous? What? It was dark. We were sitting on the balcony, looking over Ocean Avenue, smoking shisha. And I look at him and I just told him what it was about. And I think I told him he wasn't allowed to talk until I was done. Oh my. And he liked the idea. And I then got up the nerve to show him some of it. And we started talking about it. And it was just something that slowly built. I really liked it. And the more enjoyment I got from this, I started to get a little braver. And I was still trying to find roots in Brooklyn and grow my friendships and everything. So I started looking for writers group. I mean, this is ridiculous. Like I was the person I Googled. I'd be like, how to become a writer. You know, so I started, I found a writer's group and kind of started working with them, but on ideas for it and characterizations, but I was still like, this is going to go nowhere. I have to figure out something else I'm going to do with my life. You know, I was just so shy. I didn't think anybody would want to buy it. It ended up being like this 500 page giant story inspired by the medieval Islamic world. I was like this, you know, this is 2012 in the United States. This is not going to happen. But it's interesting because at the same time, I kind of had 
two grounding boards in my life. And it was like my writing community, my husband, and then I had my faith. And I was going to a really little mosque in South Brooklyn, the community that really kind of saved my soul at a very dark time. And I did a lot of like the coordination for youth volunteer. And this was like nine years ago, I want to say. This was when that whole NYPD spying on Muslims thing came out. And I was just, there were a lot of reasons to be angry. Yes. Just in general for many years. And I just remember being like really fed up, especially because I was working with younger people, people who were very devout, you know, and especially like young men who I knew were getting the side eye everywhere they went, who meanwhile, they're coming to me and they're like, how can I help people, you know, to fix like hospitals and parks. So I started working on the story harder and I just felt representation from Muslims is abysmal in the West. Mm -hmm. And something I kind of felt like I could do was write a story like this. I could take all of this history of this very early period in our religious tradition. And, you know, people ask me a lot of times, they're like, why do you describe it as an Islamic world? They're like, it's the Middle East or it's Arab. And it's really not. I mean, the city that I write about, Devabad, is in Central Asia. And I wanted to pull on this sort of cosmopolitan sense that existed in, you know, the ninth century, the 10th century, the 13th century, where you had, you know, traditions from the East African coast and you had things from way further out on the Silk Road in Asia. So I wanted to just really create this adventure story that featured people like us who spoke like us and even just have it centered in the fact that everybody is ostensibly Muslim, but there are people who don't believe. There are people who don't celebrate just like in our own families, but it's just a part of the world and the tradition and have it very grounded in that. So I wrote the book and I was like, you know what? I have nothing to lose <laughs> because I don't know what I'm doing with my life. At this point, you know, my my husband was finishing up medical school. I was like, let me just write the book. I will see what happens. So I worked on it. I worked on my writer's group with it. And in the years when I was finishing it, and then when I was querying it, it felt like the world's most selfish thing to do because it was taking away. I had a, a baby by that time, but I wanted to see what could happen with it. You know, I fixed up the book. I did my how to find an agent. What is an agent? And I queried. I mean, I, I think I, I've researched like a like a crazy person. <laughs> I shouldn't say it shouldn't be a crazy person, but like No, I totally get it. You really went down the rabbit hole for sure. Yeah, like I was a little lucky because I I don't even remember when my book came out. <laughs> I wrote it down. It's November 14th, 2017th. Boom. <laughs> yeah, it published pretty quickly. I queried in 2016, 15. I've been working on this book for a really long time. I don't remember. Wait, then it happened really quickly. Yes. And I've been behind on deadlines ever since. I'm like looking through my email. I'm like, when did I query? Wait, but for real though, congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) It was pretty quick. And it's interesting because I did all this research and I was fortunate, you know, that was when we we did have things like, oh, the manuscript wish list, you know, so I was able to really create this list of all these agents who said, you know, oh, I'm looking for, you know, stories from Muslims, stories about this, you know, all these, all these lovely things that they said they were looking for. And I started and I had a lot of full requests and which was fortunate. I was like, oh, this is good. And then I very immediately started getting all of the responses I thought I was going to get this, you know, all the polite ways to say that this book is too far. And um, this book is not quite what I was expecting. I don't know if the audience is going to feel it and connect with the characters. (gasps) And I was lucky in the fact that I, I found an agent pretty quickly, but it was also sort of an interesting look into the process because I got all these rejections. I mean, it was the point where I, then I felt very selfish, even continuing to take time from this. I was like, I have a baby. I should be doing stuff with my family and fixing my life. And like every time I, you know, went to Starbucks to work on something, I just felt like this is a terrible thing that I'm doing. Oh, um, Shannon, I just want to give you a hug and say no. You- I'm looking at the copy for my second book and it's like national bestseller. So this is all water on fridge. <laughs> it's interesting because I, le- I like to tell people that like when you're getting these rejections, one, a lot of times it's not you and you would be shocked how quickly it can turn around because yes. I was getting these rejections. Then I ended up finding my agent. And first I ended up finding her through DV Pit. Ours was the first one. And it was like, again, it kind of cut through some of these 
people saying they want these books and then not actually following through because the first agent that came to me and that I signed with, Jenna Zantian, is new and has her own shingle. And I felt like she was looking to work with me in a way that other people were just like, no, you know, it's not my thing. I'll put that I'm looking for fiction like this, but Mm. oh, I'm not actually going to sign a person like this. Then, you know, I used to not say stuff like this, but now I want people to know, like, because you should know for your own self-understanding some of those agents and publishers came back to me after I started signing with her and they're like, Oh, I guess we'll take another look at your foreign book. So if you are down about querying and feel like, you know, it's you, it's your work. A lot of the time it's not, it's worth sticking through and it's worth not assigning your self-worth to it because so much of it is luck. It's timing. And it's like, sometimes you connecting those things has nothing to do with you. Thank you for preaching that. Thank you so much, because that is something that a lot of our listeners are going through right now. Also, Shannon, if you don't mind me asking, because you mentioned that you were feeling so guilty away from the family at, at Starbucks writing your work and you felt guilty. So for all those listeners who are dealing with this, reflecting back on it, is there anything for those who are actually going through it right now? I think it's really twofold. And I I say this having gone through a whole depressive episode writing my second book at the point where I still didn't feel like I should be allowed to be doing any of this. And at that point, it was my actual job. So for people who are, are trying to get their foot in the door in regarding in writing and publishing, I think it's really twofold. One, it's to understand that this can be a very cruel and capricious business and to not let that crush you, but also make a plan forward that you can keep this as part of your life and part of your day without necessarily saying, listen, if in a year it hasn't happened, I'm out. Just understand there is a strong chance it can take a very long time and you should be getting enjoyment out of it. When you're not getting enjoyment out of it, when it's really, you know, something that you just, you feel like you're doing this because you have to or because, you know, I will write five more pages so then Mm. I will get that million dollar deal. Don't do it for that. Do it when you feel like you have to have this story pouring out of you and you have to write it out try to enjoy it. But at the same time, everybody, especially like, you know, like we live in a very crazy world and it's everybody's go, go, go. You have to have like three jobs just to keep up the bills paid and everything. If you're a parent, it's a whole other ball game. It is completely okay when you can to be a little selfish. I view writing as, I don't like to call it a hobby because people like to dismiss hobbies. Yes. Good point. Yes. But at the same time, you're allowed to have hobbies. You're allowed to have these creative pursuits and to have not just this creative pursuit, but this this world that lives in your head. You should get to express that. And it is not selfish at all. Your children will be better for you, you know, having some happiness and some yes. joy in your life, even if you need to be away from them for a little while. And, you know, find what doesn't make you feel guilty. Oh, you have to write every day. You don't have to write every day. <laughs> you can fit it into your life and not feel terrible about either doing it or not doing it. It's funny because I had taken a little bit of a, of a break from the story when I first got married and then when I was pregnant. And then when my daughter was born, you know, my husband was in the like intern and second year of residency and he was working like every hour of the week. I don't even know at a certain point when you can count that. We really didn't have any family anywhere. So I was just <laughs> with my infant daughter who I love is the light of my life, but it was very hard. You know, I would always, I kind of traditional. And I was like, oh, I'm supposed to just be finding all of my fulfillment in like washing bottles and doing all of these things. Nope. <laughs> and I felt like I came back to my spirits and myself when I started working on the story a bit more when she was working on naps or I've always been an early riser. I mean, like an embarrassingly early riser. Like I revised the 500 page epic at four o'clock in the morning for three years. I think it was having a baby and then my sleep cycle was never the same again. So I'm just like, I'm going to embrace this. Like my husband was waking up early to go to work. It was like the time I'd see him for 10 minutes. So it's like, you know, I got up, made us coffee and like, you know, like said like goodbye, maybe I'll see you in three days. And then, you know, sat down at my computer and just got back into me and this world and this story. And then, you know, when my daughter woke up, I would go in the routine and then she would take her midday nap and I would get back into it. So it just really kind 
kind of helped me feel like I came back to myself. So I tell people, enjoy writing. I know it's very hard, but when you're at the point, especially when you're still trying to break in, make sure you're getting some enjoyment out of it. Don't just do it because you feel like you have to or like it's this next step in the career thing. It's, it's too crazy of a field to just, you know, hinge all your hopes on it. Like it. Enjoy it. Find fulfillment in it. Thank you so much for going into that because that's something that really so many listeners, like I was just saying earlier, are honestly going through. And you know what I also I'm like reflecting as you were sharing everything that you were going through is how beautiful your relationship is with your husband as well, where you had to be the one taking care of you guys when he was doing his thing, when he first started off. He's a brilliant man. May I share what he does? (laughs) Oh, I met this man when we were teenagers in high school and he was like a goofball and now he's a brain surgeon. (laughs) So... We met when we were in high school at a Model United Nations conference. We went to different schools. I'm from Jersey. He's from New York. And we met at this because we were both giant nerds. And we like came up with policy together. But he was so intense. Like he soundly beat us. We were all thoroughly intimidated by him. But like I walked into the room and sitting next to him. And I just thought he was very handsome and very like, you know, knew his stuff. And like we like walked back like talking about like biological weapons. And it was so ridiculous. So yeah, he was like competitive but also like very funny it's funny because I think back and now he's like this very he's not serious with us but like he gets on the phone and he has this very deep voice and he's talking about patient stuff and I'm just like what happened (laughs) that is so incredible I love your story so much does he go as far as like hey maybe I think this paragraph maybe you can dive deeper and work on this like does he go into those details or is he more like overview okay this sounds awesome this sounds great What's his style like? Um, both, except he doesn't say things like maybe. <laughs> oh, so he's very like, now this is how it goes. Yes. I mean, which is fine. It's good. Like I said, I mean, we've known each other since we were kids. Like so much of it even feels like collaborative. Cause like he just, you know, I ended up working in medicine and he was in medical school. And like, that's a lot of the reason I made Nahri a doctor and why I wanted to show sort of the very not mm. clean parts of the traditional magical healing trope. I wanted to make it messy and show how much of it had to be done through practice. And, you know, and that's the second book again, you know, like it was, I have some lines in there about how this is your field of work. You know, you see some terrible, terrible things and that's your every day. You know, you're sort of people's, he has some quote, I know he picked up from a movie where he's like, people's worst day are my, that's my work. So he helps me with like that. Like in the third book, there's a scene of like old school brain surgery. So he helps me with that. So, but it's just always a collaboration and it's, it's just really nice because I just feel like, you know, he, we can really talk about this stuff and it's fun. And, you know, like he can tell me like, I like this character. I don't like this character. Um, and it's just kind of like, I feel like I live with my like closest fan. I know a lot of people don't have that. And I feel like if your spouse read your stuff and didn't like it, or like if you wanted them to read it and they were like, I don't really like that kind of thing, that could be like very, very difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's very disheartening. I'm very lucky and like, you know, that he's always been there and, and had my back in just every way. I love that because you were there for him too when he was first starting out too, when he was studying in medical school and everything. It just sounds like you both have a really beautiful, healthy, symbiotic relationship where you're both there for each other at different times of your lives and also both understand like what it means to support each other in whatever way that you need. And I think that's something that truly is a gift beyond just him being the best beta reader in the world <laughs> and the most brilliant one. Thank you for being an inspiration overall, darling. (laughs) No, thank you for, you know, even having this podcast. I'm normally far more (laughs) closed mouth and and private about my personal life. But I, you know, just preparing for this and, and listening to you speak to the other guests and thinking back to how I felt in my darkest moments as trying to get my foot in the door in publishing. I was even telling my husband beforehand, I was like, I'm going to just put it out there because people need to know, like, it's okay to make time for yourself. And, you know. Yes. I'm so glad you did. You have no idea how many people struggle with that. For real. So Shannon, I do want to also jump into, I know the kingdom of copper. Do you mind giving the listeners a snapshot through your own words of basically your trilogy, the city of brass and the kingdom of copper so that they understand, you know, the details once we get into it a little bit later? Yes. So my first book is the city of brass and it centers on Nahri, who is a con artist living in 18th century Cairo. 
I will be be upfront and, and say it starts as I wanted it to with a little bit of the trope of fantasy orphan. You know, oh, she's got this mysterious background. She's got these powers she doesn't really understand. She can speak any language. She can heal people um, Well, at a certain level. But, you know, she's growing up in Egypt and I actually wanted to kind of delve into, okay, so we have our fantasy orphan who's been growing up alone and really start with just how much that would really screw you over in most societies that were based on communal family ties and how lonely you would be to walk around your entire life with, you know, you try to get close to people and you have abilities that would rightfully terrify anyone. So she is a woman who has survived this and has almost somewhat thrived. You know, she she wants more for her life. She has dreams of maybe one day saving enough money to travel to Istanbul and, and actually learn how to become a proper doctor. But she doesn't really, you know, she's a hustler and she doesn't really have time for any of this magical nonsense that people say exists because she doesn't think it exists. She plays on it. I mean, she tells people all the time, oh, I'm possessed by the jinn and I'm going to do this thing and this thing is to get money out of you and ha ha ha, I've always joked about jinn and these things, they don't exist until she finds out they do. (laughs) So when she finds out, she accidentally calls one to her and comes to find out without getting into a summary of the entire book that she is sort of the lost partial descendant of a family of jinn healers who once ruled the magical world. And centuries ago, they were overthrown over political issues involving the oppression of people who have mixed human and jinn blood. But this was centuries ago, and the warrior jinn who saves her, or he calls himself a deva, was an integral part of that war. So she is brought back to the city, and without completely spoiling things, it does not go well. <laughs> and a lot of the book has to do with her journey back there and what it means, the place that she wants for her life in this kind of society and this kind of world. So that's not her journey. And it's also told from the point of the prince of the ruling family now. He's he's one of the younger princes. He's being trained for military duty. He's young. He's 18 years old. His name is Ali. He's very religious and devout. And his own family is now oppressing the same class. And it's his own journey of trying to really come to terms with the fact that his faith and his religion and his conscience calls for him to act out against his family and what it means to come to the realization that you are part of the oppressor class. And it comes to a head (laughs) in a way that I won't spoil because I know the ending of City of Brass is uh, slightly climatic, but I will say it ends. (laughs) And Kingdom of Copper picks up five years later with Nahri is is essentially now a political prisoner. Um, she's, She's trying to survive. Like, I didn't want her to feel like just this, you know, character who was trapped and sad. You know, she is still a survivor. So she is, she has married the crown prince. Um, she's negotiated some power for herself and is trying to find a life for herself and a way to kind of help her people in the small ways she can. Because at the same time, she is any, you know, instinct she shows, like, uh, you know, she has a friend. She wants more power. She's the king basically is like, well, then I'm going to massacre some of your tribesmen. So she's being held in this sort of political cage by Ali after the events of the first book has been banished. His father essentially wanted to sentence him to death for treason. Um, and I don't want to entirely spoil things, but I feel like it's kind of obvious. He comes back to the city. So the story cut in Kingdom of Copper converges on people who are trying to make a very mixed place that has, a, like most places in this world, that are founded by waves of different oppression and different occupation and and just waves of communal violence that then one group sweeps in and they take it out on the other and, you know, build up on that and show that just everybody has this messy history, I think, which is true of a lot of the world today. Mm-hmm. And how do you fix a place like that? How do you do that when your people are the problem? <laughs> when, you know, Kingdom of Copper came, I was writing it, you know, when Trump became president and I felt had these two parts in my head. I had, you know, the Muslim who was watching my community be scapegoated and then I'm white. You know, it's, it was like watching like the, all the mm-hmm. other, you know, like white people wake up like, wait, are we bad? <laughs> like, 
So I really wanted to delve into two, into a lot of different aspects of like, you know, how do you negotiate that? Like, how do you fix something when you are the problem? How do you identify your problem? And how do you make it not about putting more work on the group that your, your family is currently oppressing? So I really wanted to work with different ways of how to move forward and how these characters move forward or they don't move forward. And that the political process in real life and in what I wanted to bring to my fantasy world, it's messy and it's It's not one person riding in to save the day. It's 12 people gathered around a table who scream at each other to fix the town charter and might get half of what they want, half of what they don't. And and it's this sort of like two steps forward, one step back process to fix places. Oh my gosh. You, I'm sorry, but I, I think that your intelligence and your husband's are equal. I want to put that out there just FYI. Okay. So how were you able to craft out the vibrant world that you built? Jeez, I can't even imagine how many hours of research that was. <laughs> I don't know because this now this started when it was still like this little world building game that I played with myself. And it actually, when I was looking for sort of an underpinning, I wanted to look at the traditional roots of what we say about jinn. And it's not sort of this like big blue guy from Aladdin, you know, in, in Islam and is in texts and in traditions that predate Islam, we say, you know, that the jinn are creatures created of smokeless fire. And they essentially, they're kind of like people. They have their own societies, but they live in this sort of hidden world we can't see. So when I was working with this story, one, I thought that was fascinating because people like, oh, they live for centuries. And I was like, I really like history. I wish I could go about with like my invisibility cloak <laughs> and have seen like the rise of like Cairo <laughs> and like, you know, traveled on a Dow in like the 13th century. That's awesome. Um, so I wanted to work with that. So I was like, okay, so what might their world look like if they had, you know, just quietly lived among human societies and taken what they liked? I liked the idea of of like, you know, they think they're superior to humans and they're like the ultimate like appropriators. They're like, I like the idea of, I'm going to just say that's a lock and you know, it's a telescope. (laughs) Uh, Or like, you know, they would say, oh, we are better than humans, but I like the design of that building, the ziggurat. Let's bring that back to Devabad and use it and then say we made it. So I wanted to like, you know, kind of build up this world. And also, you know, it's funny because I wanted to take what we had in textual tradition and not really like violate it, both as, you know, I would occasionally they'd be like, I don't know if I want to touch this. I'm, you know, kind of orthodox. But I also, it was like, you know, they were, I had rules for myself. So I started with, okay, we say Suleiman, he punished the jinn and he brought, he could control them. He had a, had a seal ring. He could control jinn and he brought them to Jerusalem and they were, you know, they were to build the temple. It was, you know, this penance in some of the other folkloric traditions. You then will see, you know, tales from the medieval period where they find jinn in bottles and they bring them out and they're like, I was cursed by Suleiman. So I wanted to use that. And I was like, okay, So they've been cursed by Suleiman for, you know, messing with humans. And when they serve their punishment, he sends them back into the world, but he takes away a lot of their power and he separates them into six different groups, sends them all over the human world. You know, now they have different languages and it's kind of like, okay, fight with each other instead of unifying to fight us kind of deal. So when I looked at that, I wanted to build those worlds. It's like, okay, if you had this set of spirits land in, you know, Harappa 3000 years ago, and they were like, we don't have magic anymore. We just have a little. How would they build their world? So they take elements from that and then make it their own or completely subvert it in many ways. You know, we have a lot of traditions that jinn live in ruins, that they live in latrines, which always kind of confused me. You know, some some say, okay, you leave, you know, your food scrapes out for them because they have magic that they can, you know, bring it back and, and consume it. So I wanted to use some of those and kind of flesh out what we have and just we have our stories of jinn. What are their stories of us? Or what is what could their world look like? So a lot of it was just building from that. You know, like I said, it was this project that was never going to show anyone. So I kind of, you know, I have short stories and everything set in different parts of the gin world or with different characters and different things. So fortunately, then when I go to write the actual stories and books, I have a lot of this written down. I have a lot of it in my head or because I have like at this point in my life, a ridiculous library of books and scholar friends who are the actual academics. Usually if I need to know something like, okay, I need to know when this was invented. I kind of know where to go for it. Or I read a new book about female poets in the Abbasid court and some of the lines were really clever and, you know, some of the the way they set the dances and everything. I have a 
court scene, maybe they've taken from some of that. So it's it's kind of like a process of like, I usually, my reading now is kind of divided into like a third research, a third genre fiction, and then a third just stuff I like. And, you know, it's kind of, I'm always reading different books about the region um, and the time period. It's I said it in the 18th century, but I wanted it to feel like a portal fantasy where she goes back medieval world because I wanted the jinn to seem backwards that if they were taking these things from the humans they were going to be a couple centuries behind which is why it works with the period that I was looking at so I kind of just I'm always reading and, and kind of like oh this would be interesting to throw in or you know this was where I could go back for that Whoa, okay. I don't think I could ever craft anything like this. Your brain is basically a neurosurgeon's brain, okay? FYI. So let's say I want to write something that's based off of Buddhist texts or what I grew up hearing from my families, but I am at a loss for getting the deeper details. I'm, I'm curious about researching in terms of like, overall sources. I know that you mentioned you had some friends in academia. How about those who may not have any access to anyone in academia or anything like that? For the purposes of storytelling, I think because you're you're looking at history a different way, and I'm, I'm I'm a bit fortunate in the fact that a lot of early Islamic history is written almost in a way that kind of brings up anecdotes instead of straight, direct, you know, in this year, this happened with this many soldiers. And it kind of, it's good for a storyteller. They're like, this ruler did this. And sometimes they're humorous, sometimes they're frightening. And it kind of brings the past alive. And it, so when I t- talk to people who want to write historical fiction, you want to look for things like that. So I often suggest people start with a nonfiction historical book that's written for a lay audience. And, you know, that would be the type of thing that you wouldn't pick up at, you know, the university library, but that you might find, you know, I'm trying to think, I actually have a reading list on my website Ooh. and I'm trying, there's a title. Uh, when Baghdad ruled the world, I believe is, is a good lay history of, you know, the Abbasid Caliphate. And it's, it has plenty of, of, uh, you know, biases and errors, but you start with something like that. And that's where you can comb through that for sources. They will list their sources. And, you know, you get a hint of the larger history and the larger scopes and themes that I think then allows you to be like, I need this part. Where can I delve into this? And Twitter is also a great source. History Twitter, which is like the reason I stay on social media. Wait, what? Yes. History Twitter is fantastic. Twitter historians is the hashtag. (gasps) And if you're really interested in a period or a place, or something, start following people on Twitter who write about it. You get stories, you get links and essays and articles and like the most fascinating information. And it's, it's just a nice place to hang out online. So that's another good spot to start. You know, there is usually a lot of things and, you know, I'm biased because when people will be like, can you recommend a history book about the Middle East? I'm like, I don't even know where to start with that. And I was fortunate that I had so many years of this, even though a lot of it, you know, some of it was in undergrad, um, but a lot of it was my own, my own reading and everything. But I don't think I could have written this book if I hadn't had that. So I don't, you know, even when I'm moving on with other projects in the future, I have a hard time thinking like, you know, people be like, oh, you're going to write like, because of course I write fantasy. I have to write something about, you know, castles in the West. And I'm like, I have no idea. I'm like, I'm like, don't get me wrong. Like my family is Irish and Italian. I couldn't tell you what they did. Now, if you would like to talk about the exact dietary habits of Egyptians in the 12th century, we're down. So it, research takes a very long time to really kind of get some of this stuff. And I think understanding that and then moving forward from that and deciding what you want to do with that and how much you want to take and and learn is just something to kind of be okay with. <laughs> oh, that's so good. I could see so many quotables right there. <laughs> so thank you so much for that. Okay, I also want to get into, you mentioned there's a lot of politics happening. And I feel like that is something that's truly so heavy and a lot of uh, heavy lifting too, when you're actually working on the story. How did you approach that without it draining you mentally? I mean, you're already waking up so early in the morning. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're taking care of a baby on top of that. Like, how were you able to keep yourself intact emotionally and mentally? Honestly. I don't know that I kept myself intact emotionally and mentally. I think, Fair enough. I think to be quite honest, I think a lot of us are in that, pos- that position and have been in that position for a long time, even before Trump. You know, I write and I studied in the Middle East. I'm quite aware of the 
horrific amount of damage my country has inflicted on the lands I study about and the places where I have dear friends and places that have sacred meaning to me. And that's something that started way before Bush. So I kind of feel like if I'm going to write from this, if I'm going to sell books about this place, I have a duty and a responsibility to not look away and to do what I can to get it right and to prop up authors and other writers and everything from there. I mean, this is something, you know, I have some strong feelings about people writing about places where they're not from. And it's like, if you're going to do that, if you're going to say, oh, I love something so much, I have have to write a story about it that better be true mm-hmm, <laughs> like mm-hmm, you don't agreed. get to look away like because you're like you know you're privileged and you're living in like your united states apartment like don't get me wrong we got a lot of problems here people who are not white have even worse problems here and, and other marginalizations but nobody's dropping a drone on my apartment in queens from my own government so mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> i think it's about kind of understanding where you're coming from and just being like no you don't get to look away you know get your hands in this and see what you can do to fix things and you know i think in that, I mean, that's, that's key to surviving a lot of the political oppression anywhere is that to make it, you know, manageable and not give up, find ways to help find selective things to do. Um, you know, I'm going, if you take it all in, it's going to crush you find certain ways to work on it. And I think I can do this for this. I think Mm -hmm. I can do this for this. Let me have an all aware uh, around awareness of some of this, but just, you know, move forward in a way you can be productive and not be crushed. What was the most difficult part about writing, well, two of the books, two of your uh, trilogies so far, City of Brass and The Kingdom of Copper? The writing of book two. And I knew this was going to happen because everybody I knew talked about how book two was like the soul killer. And I had lots of things going great. I like to be, you know, honest and like, cause this is another thing publishing people don't always talk about, you know, the money or the aspects. And like, I am very fortunate that, you know, this is my job and my daughter is in school now, thank God. And, you know, I, <laughs> I'm very fortunate to have that, but it all happened very, very fast. And I just was not prepared for it. Like I said, I wrote my first book in this like, laddie this is this thing I love. I don't even know. I don't even know when to start saying I wrote it. I'm like, did it take 10 years, seven <laughs> years? I don't even know. And the book first come book out to great acclaim. Like, you know, I, I, I was like, wow, this is cool. This book I wrote, that was the first thing I ever wrote. <laughs> it has all these starred reviews and people are reading it and loving it. And oh my God, I have like eight months to figure out what it means to write a book. Like I, I remember just thinking like, wait, I'm, I'm not a writer. Like, shouldn't I take a class? Shouldn't I read that Stephen King book everybody talks about? But I can't because I have to turn craft in in like eight months. And, you know, the way the timing worked too, like we published it very fast and I was still rewriting much of it when the first book went out. And that was that, although don't read reviews, don't do this. And even though I was fortunate and my reviews were positive, it just got in my head. It's like every second book two problem they tell you to avoid. I was like, let's just go right through that. (laughs) (laughs) So I had a huge time. I mean, even just understanding the concept of like, I am a writer. What does it mean to write a book? All these people talk about outlining. Am I supposed to outline? Am I supposed to draft the entire thing? I didn't even know how to sit down and just be like, I have this story. How do I start? And it was coming to terms with that. And to be quite honest, a couple nervous breakdowns and some health scares, uh, which I think is something we also don't talk about in this field. But it was just that. It was sitting down and just being like, how do I write a book? I have this story. I had this story. I wanted it to go this way four years ago, but now I'm a different writer. It's a different book that I just put out. How do I stay true to that? So I think just, you know, the whole book two blues and and writing through that and learning a way to be honest with my agent and my publisher of when I needed more time or when I needed help and guidance, just getting through that. And it was this concept of, you know, and I think a lot of this is true for a lot of aspiring writers where they're like, isn't there a to-do book on how to write a book? And there's just not. And so much of this is through practice, but also so much of this is through embracing what works for you. I mean, I feel like I know a lot of people who can just sit down and write the outline. I cannot do that, which is such a hard thing to say because I am so meticulous in everything else in life. I have like, (laughs) I sit down to write, I'm kind of have an idea and it's like, bam, oh, wow what if I made the river rise up? And like, that's, I don't think that's ever been done in fantasy or like, you know, I'm writing some dialogue and 
okay, the entire third act just came from this one understanding. I just needed to write it out. So I think it was just embracing what my writing style was, which was unfortunately write it 10 times so that you know what's wrong and what the way it is was my hardest problem. And like it said a lot, do what works for you. Really do what works for you. Like everybody says fast draft, outline, but I did find for myself, and this might work for other writers, especially people who are writing some kind of the type of epic fantasy that's very detail oriented. I have found I write a chapter, I write a second chapter, I go back and edit that first chapter. Wow. Not, you know, wild edits, but I need to keep returning and checking and and going back. I can't just, you know, smash out a draft. I wish I could. But the story, it kind of evolves and reveals itself to me as I write. And I think for, for, you know, a lot of people, that's true. And you can't really train yourself out of that. You kind of just got to learn a way to go with it and, and, and be okay exploring. Be okay. I might sit at the computer today and knock out 2,000 words and delete them all tomorrow, but it's because I f- figured out, oh, this wasn't the correct direction to go. I am telling you, all of this is so valuable. You have no idea. And I do want to, if you don't mind, I'm going to also circle back because you did mention something that's so true, which is what I try to highlight in as many episodes as possible is that this industry doesn't talk enough about the real health scares that you can get from all the stress, all the pressure, the deadlines, and also mental health. Is there something that you feel like from writing book two where you really want to drive home for our listeners? I think, and I mean, I can come up with a lot of things. Um, you know, I try to talk to a lot of debut writers now because I try to be like, I made lots of mistakes and it, you know, it made my hair fall out. Let's talk. <laughs> Rogaine number one. Yes. <laughs> Coconut oil, man. Yeah. So the one thing I really do tell people, this is particularly, I think, for debut writers, there is an immense pressure to be your own publicist and do your own promo. It's because, yes. to be quite honest, publishing is incredibly difficult and you do feel like you need to get out there. You need to sell yourself. You need to make your pre-order incentives and get the newsletter. And you should do some of this. You should also realize at a certain point, you can't do everything and accessibility to yourself, especially once that book comes out, you might want to really think about what you're taking in. People say don't read reviews because, oh, it makes you weak and you you should be able to handle this. I love my readers. My readers are the reason I am here and I am still putting a book out. Like they are the best. The reason I'm on Twitter is is like, like, I love they're like sending me all their like their fan art. Like you guys, like you're the best and the most talented. And I know I'm biased, but you're the best. But at a certain point, I don't read reviews. I don't even read a lot of of positive reviews. You read them by no person, but I don't think one, and this is the absolute truth. You can read a hundred glowing reviews and you will read one, not even bad review, one mild review and it (laughs) haunts you. Your stomach will clench and you just be like, ah, why did I do this? I'm not supposed to do this. Don't do it. It's just not worth it. I tr- And it's not a weakness. I just, I don't believe human beings were meant to read the comment threads about a work that they put out. And I think it's completely okay. I'm very much a supporter of the idea of death of the author. And it's like, if you need to move on and you need to take breaks from thinking about yourself as an author, from thinking about your work and what people might be reading about your work, that is completely okay and valid. And it doesn't make you weak. It doesn't mean, you know, oh, I'm not interacting with my readers. If you need to take a break sometimes, and just be like, I didn't write a book or I'm, I'm writing a book, but nobody's ever going to read it. That can really help your creativity when you're in that sort of like, especially for book two, when you're like, oh, I don't know if they're going to like this because they liked this thing. So I'm not even going to say what thing because people who, are read, who read my book are going to know immediately what I'm talking about. They really liked this thing, but you were going in a different direction. You just, you have to find a way to be true to the story and not necessarily always, you know, have, have yourself just kind of like, like I said, read the comment sections for your own soul. It's just not worth it. Oh, that was so good. I'm trying to remember who said that because it was another author I like. And I was just like, that is absolutely true. And this is why, you know, I have blocks on Goodreads and on Twitter searching myself, the title of my book. I just, I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you mind if I squeeze in one more question from a listener who's a fan of yours? Her name is Kate Havis or Havas. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. She wrote, I loved City of Brass. I was wondering about how you went about the publishing marketing plan. Diverse, female-led, quick-paced fantasy is often automatically sent to YA. So was it hard to get interest from an adult publisher with a young fantasy heroine? How do you feel about the crossover between upper YA and adult markets? So this was not something I knew anything about <laughs> when I first started because I would just research. I'm like, I need to know what I need to find an agent. And I had always viewed it as an adult book. I like YA a lot, but it was just like, I knew, especially without like giving a lot away that there was going to be this time jump. The time jump was actually longer when I was first actually in submission for my publisher. And I was conceiving of the view as some of the, um, you know, the characters and everything as a little older. So I didn't really view it as YA. And when we went out, we were talking about crossover and I'm not going to, it was very far into the process when I got the courage to be like, what, what are you talking about? What does crossover me? <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I'm the person who like a starred review, which was great because I didn't know what that meant. And I have a text message, but I'm pretty sure my agent saved that. I was like, Jen, is this a good thing? <laughs> so I didn't know that there was like this whole conversation about it, but I like it. I have, I think there's a lot to be said about the crossover audience. And I think I don't like to speak for YA because I think they have authors and reps and everything who speak way better than I could about YA. But I kind of like the fact that it's, you know, like a cross, a crossover appeal, because I think that does work. I mean, when the first book starts, you know, Ali's 18 and I meant for him to read as 18 because he has some strong opinions and he does some things that were he 25 would not be understood. Understandable, but <laughs> at 18, and I know, let me say, I was 18 and I was very orthodox and I had lots of opinions and I wrote a lot of that into Ali. <laughs> so, you know, I wanted to show that you have this in your life. So I like that. I, I mean, my gosh, I can't think of another fantasy that comes from the perspective of, you know, a young Muslim teenager trying to work out what it means to take your faith and be a good person. So I like that. And I love hearing from my readers who like that. And I even, you know, Nahri is 20 in the book and she's 25 in the second book. But again, you're still figuring yourself out and trying to find your place in the world. And I think you can cross over. I think, you know, like, and this is my own perspective. When I thought of why I was like, okay, so, you know, they have to be 17 or younger, but that says when you're 17 and younger, you don't have to read books that are just for people who are 17 and younger. I mean, my parents dropped me off in the library. I was reading Stephen King when I was younger and that's fine. You're reading. I think we should all read. I read why I love a lot of YA fantasy. It's quick paced. It's, they do far better with diversity and issues than adult publishing. Mm, mm -hmm. So it's good. I think we should all be reading each other and I mean, I love it. My YA fans are the most engaged. They're the ones who like send me fan art and follow me on Twitter. Like I, I like this. I know there's, you know, some people, you know, don't like their books being shelved over there or, or over here. I'm just like, you want to read my book? Like, that's awesome. Like, like, thank you for reading and buying my book, period. I hope they'll, they'll stay with me when the characters age a bit, but I think that's okay. You know, people get older and we're all aging and, you know, that's fine. I love that. Oh my gosh. Okay. I think Kate's going to be thrilled and so happy and excited to hear your answer. Thank you so much for that. Talking about books, are there any books that you recommend that's really meaningful to you or that you feel like would really help our community with whether it's writing stories with tips on craft or any kind of fantasy book that really blew your mind away and you're like, dang, now that's how to write a book. So because I am a giant history fan, I'm going to actually recommend some historical fiction. I think for fantasy, I think a lot of fantasy is getting your characters to feel real when the world is just fantastical. Yes. And I think a good way to practice that and to sometimes look at other ways people do it is to look at historical fiction because you're Brilliant. looking for the same thing of like, how did the best historical fiction, there is, you know, the divide falls away from you and, and you know, they are in the past, but you can just, you know, it feels alive to you and these characters are alive to you and it helps you delve into a deeper perspective of humanity and complexity and I think if you can see how that's done in other books, it kind of helps you bring that that aspect and that realism to, to fantasy. So I would say my absolute favorite historical fiction book that broke and shattered my heart in about a thousand pieces is Leila Lamami's The Moore's Account. Oh. And it's actually 
some roots in, in history. And it's the perspective of a North African man, Scott, you know, he's studying as a businessman and he's young and he's enslaved by the Spanish and brought over in what is really like the first expedition to Florida. And it's a doomed expedition. And for me, I read it at a point in my life where I was in Florida when I read it and ISIS was advancing in Syria. And I felt like I was just watching this aspect of my identity be crushed because, you know, the book talks about, you know, he's Muslim and he's been enslaved and, you know, he's being forced to abandon his faith and his people and his family. And it's like, it happened so long ago. And, you know, there's all of these divides between me and the character, but it's just, you know, she's a brilliant writer anyway, but it just really, like, if you are looking to write from a perspective that is not your own, that's a good way to go about it. And I'm reading another one right now, The Watermelon Boys by Rukaya Izzedin. Um, And I'll spell her last name. It's I-Z-Z-I-D-I-E-N. And it's uh, a book about World War One, and it's told about the Arab revolt and what ends up, you know, the British ruining everything <laughs> and taking over Iraq. And so I try to push different perspectives on people because... One, you should always read different perspectives. Agreed. You live in this glossy world of like, World War One. it was like the glorious days of empire or yes. of bad things were happening. They were happening to, you know, white people in Europe. It was Downton Abbey and all that. Like, uh, no. Um, <laughs> so I think a part of being a good person is reading different perspectives. But also, if you're a writer, you need to get in the head of different people. So I just, getting in the head of somebody from the past, getting in the head of from somebody who lived a different perspective through events that you're not used to thinking in their, in their direction, I think that's very good and helps you just learn how to write different kinds of voices. All right. So now, Shannon, please tell listeners where they can find you online to say hello. I have all of my book information and all that, of course, on my website, which is www.sachakraborty.com. And I will say, because a lot of people who are interested in history, I keep a reading list there as well of like books. If you like the period, you might like this kind of stuff. And I have- Oh, perfect. Because I know that my books are a little intense. I have, you know, my maps and my character lists and my glossary are all on my website, for especially for audiobook readers. And online, you can find me on Twitter. I'm pretty active. My handle is sachakrabooks, which is S-A- C-H-A-K-R-A-B-O-O-K-S. And like, if you're trying to contact me, I'm there and I'm usually just like being like showing pictures of like, this was a hospital in like 13th century. (laughs) That's where I like, I really like to interact with readers and everything. So you are welcome to find me on there. And that wraps up our episode with S.A. Chakraborty. Shannon, I had such a fun time talking with you. Thank you so much for opening up and being fully transparent throughout our entire conversation and sharing so much heartfelt and helpful advice for our listeners. You are amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to drop by and say hi to Shannon over on Twitter at S-A-Chakra-Books. Head over to 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash S-A dash for her show notes page with all the books and resources mentioned in her episode. Don't forget to head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash 88cupsoftea to check out all the fun features each tier has to offer or to get early access to our upcoming episodes, sign up for the Silky Chickens with Balloons tier or higher. You'll get immediate early access to interviews with authors like Naomi Novik of Spinning Silver and Julie Dow of Forest of a Thousand Lanterns. Have a super productive week, and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye! Bye!